We, um, we really want to be a church that's like that, that conference that Lecrae found Jesus at. We really want you to walk into this place and see ex-gang members because they're here and, and see people with bullet holes because they're here and, and see people who are imperfect that have found a perfect Jesus. That's why we're talking about grace. That's why we're telling these stories of grace. And we can honor Pastor Lonnie because he is a great guy, but you got to know he is not perfect. And, and you know what? I tell you about every week, I'm not perfect. Well, we're just a bunch of imperfect people in need of a whole lot of grace. And sometimes people can hide, you know, their mistakes and you don't really know. Uh, that's the problem with a lot of churches. You just walk in, everybody's, you know, all, all dolled up and kind of, you know, makeup all over and, and, and they got their smiley face on and you don't really know what's going on. This church is real. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, sometimes uh, when a public person makes a mistake, it's, uh, it's right out front for everybody to see. Somebody sent me this video this week. I, I have not stopped laughing ever since I first started watching it. <laughs> and for more now on what we can expect from this winter blast, let's bring in Weather Channel meteorologist Mike Seidel. He's in Sugar Mountain, North Carolina. Hi, Mike. Why? Well, obviously, Mike, not quite ready for us, but let's turn to some other news we're following on this uh, Saturday night. <laughs> How does Lester keep it going there? I got to ask you. Well, obviously, Mike's not ready for us. <laughs> all, all he says is, why? Okay. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Whether your sins are public, whether your mistakes are public, or whether they're private, all men need salvation, and it only comes from the grace of God. I want to look at Peter today, because Peter has always been somebody, I'm, 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 going, to, I'm going to talk about him in a way that seems maybe a little disrespectful, but it's only because I see myself in Peter. Peter is that impetuous, you know, charge ahead, don't think about it, you know, bull in a china closet kind of a person and kind of like me. I mean, you got to give him credit. He, he tries to get out and walk on water, and he does for a minute until he fails, but he did get out of the boat. you got to give him credit. In the garden, he's the only one that grabs a sword and tries to defend Jesus, right? He's not a swordsman. All he does is cut a guy's ear off, you know? He's no Michonne from, you know, Walking Dead, but at least he tries, right? He's the one that Jesus called the rock, and it's not because, you know, he looked like Dwayne Johnson. It's because he is the guy that deep down inside, even though he's going to screw up, even though he's a mess, he's the guy that, that Jesus thinks can lead his church when he's gone. Most of you grew up in a Catholic background. You know, Peter is considered the first pope. You know, he's got basilicas. You know, you know, you know a little bit about the story of Peter. But here's the deal about Peter. This is what's so important. He was never perfect. He was never perfect. We're going we're to look through kind of his whole life history in here in, in, in a half hour. But I, I want you to understand it this way. You are never going to not need grace. All right, teachers, I know that's a double negative. I didn't do ungood in English, okay? Sometimes you need to make a point. You are never going to not need grace. Say that with me. You are never going to not need grace. Make it personal. I am never going to not need grace. This is really important. And sometimes it's those of us who think we're standing strong who are the ones who are going to need grace more than anybody else. The Last Supper, Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, Jesus, I never will. 
You know, Jesus is, you know, predicting that everybody's going to fall away and this bad stuff's going to happen. Peter goes, yeah, those guys maybe, but not me. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, and in in Mark's version, it says he declared emphatically, because that's who Peter is. Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never disown you. Switch scenes. Jesus gets arrested. He's at the chief priest's courtyard. Peter is one of only two of the apostles, of the disciples who followed him. All the others did run away. Somebody sees him. It's the next scene. We see Peter. You are not one of the disciples, are you? A girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, nope. It's a girl at the door. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's, it's not Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, with a big gun in your face. It's not, it's not some bad guy. It's not like, it's just a girl at the door. Hey, aren't you with Jesus? He can't, he, he you know, a couple, a, a couple of hours ago, he said, oh, I'll die with you, Jesus. Some girl goes, are you with Jesus? Nope, that's not me. I'm not. Listen to this. It was cold and the servants and the officials around the fire it was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. And Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Then another girl sees him, says, hey, you're a Jesus guy. He denies it again. Third time, somebody says, aren't you one of those Jesus guys? And he denies it. And this time he adds swearing for emphasis. Sometimes that's important. Um, one of my my good friends, a couple of my good friends, uh, well, actually, Pastor Chaz and Chelsea also um, went, uh, and they're also my good friends, but they, uh, they went on the Daniel plan. Uh, have you done any, like, diet plans where they try to make you eat food that just really shouldn't be eaten, you know? <laughs> Can we just say that quinoa is in that category? Quinoa? And they decided, that, <laughs> what I love about it, they decided that, that they would make quinoa into a swear word, that they weren't going to eat it. They were just going to make, you know, because that solves two problems. You have something to do with quinoa, and you can work on your swearing, you know. So, son of a quinoa. I mean, it just, it just works, right? So, so I'm imagining Peter going, quinoa, I don't even know this guy. He's making an emphatic point. And just, the Bible says, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Let, let, the, let that moment sink in. Jesus says the rooster's going to crow, and, and, you know, he denies him three times, and then the rooster crows. I swear I don't know the man, the rooster crows, and then this is what kills you, right? The look. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Evidently, they were close enough within eyeshot to be able to see each other, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and their eyes met. And it says, then Peter remembered the word of the Lord had spoken to him, before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Remember, you're never going to not need grace. Sometimes when you think you're the strongest is when you're going to need it the most. 
You've probably had that feeling, I've had that feeling, the epic fail. Maybe it was on public television, maybe it's not, but you know the feeling. There's a recognition from somebody else that there's a fail and you need grace. This is why it's so important for us to grab a hold of how how relevant the Easter story is to these guys, especially, to everybody that's run away. I mean, it's important to us, but imagine you're Peter, and this is the scene. Early on that first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running. To who? To Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. (laughs) For some reason, Did you have like one of your siblings that was always like, I'm the favorite? (laughs) When John wrote his gospel, that's kind of what he did. Uh, He doesn't talk about himself in first person. He just calls himself the the disciple Jesus loved. (laughs) So, So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. All right, so... Let, let's, just, let's just make fun of John Smore. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running. Guys, check this. This is so fun. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Which disciple? The one that Jesus loved. Not only does Jesus love him, but he's faster than Peter, ladies and gentlemen. Do you catch this? This is like the most important moment in human history. And John is a guide. He has to throw in there that he won the race to the tomb. I I love that so much. That's who we are. You know, it's always a contest, ladies. You don't understand it. You go to the store and you're like, oh, I saved $100 today. And we're like, we don't care. How fast did you get to the store? That's all that matters. So Peter bends over. He looks at the strips of linen or John did, the disciple who Jesus loved, and and he didn't go in. So Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. All right, check this. If Peter's writing this text, there's there's gonna be something in here about, yeah, I I, I lost the race to the tomb. My hammies were hurting from doing deadlifts the day before, you know? But I went in first because John was too scared. The disciple Jesus loved was too scared to go in the tomb, so I went. Because that's who Peter is. He's the jump out of the, wa- out of the boat guy. He's the grab a sword guy. He's the run into the tomb guy. That's who he is. All right? So, so they know Jesus is alive, and we see some interaction after the Easter morning. Um, but no personal interaction between Jesus and Peter until we get over to John 21. And they're fishing. This is this this has just really hit me this week. They're out fishing. They know that Jesus is alive. They've seen him, but they're out fishing. Why? Why? Because well, because the fishermen. That's their that's their job. But it has there has to be something here in in Peter's mind. He would be out fishing instead of looking for Jesus or hanging around with Jesus. I think in to me, I think Peter is going. Okay, well, Jesus is alive, and that's really awesome, but. He can't possibly still want me to lead his church. So I'm just going to go back to my day job, and I'm going to go fishing. So they're fishing in the same place overnight, the same place where Jesus calls them uh, the first time, and the first time and the second time, or first time and this time, it's the same story. They fished all night. They didn't catch a thing. Jesus shows up. They can't tell who it is, but he's yelling at them. He says, cast your nets on the other side, which is like five feet away from where they just were, Right? And they're like, oh, whatever. And they throw their nets out, and they catch a boatload of fish on this side instead of this side. Okay? The first time, they were like, who is this guy? They come in, and Jesus says, I want you to be fishers of men. This time, they realize who it is. 
because they've been following this guy. There's only one guy that could pull this off. So the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. Peter jumps out of the boat again, right? I mean, they're a hundred yards offshore. They're in a boat. They're going to shore. What is that all about? Well, I mean, maybe it's just Peter's impetuousness, but I think Peter was really anxious to be reunited with Jesus. Because when you're not sure where you're at with Jesus, you're really anxious to be reunited with Jesus. And that may be where you're at today. Jump out of the boat, come on. It says, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus was making breakfast. Got that? Okay, that, that's, the, that's the deal, okay? And, and Peter's anxious to get back, so he jumps out of the boat. A couple of interesting things about this passage. He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off. All right, you've got to understand, in that day, you, you, your underwear was like, it was like a robe. It was like a, a, a short robe that you wore underneath your clothes. And then you had an outer garment that you put on. And you didn't go out in public in just your undergarment because that wasn't cool. But it wasn't, like, it wasn't like it was revealing. It wasn't like, you know, I mean, it's not like Peter's fishing in his tidy whities here, okay? He, 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 he's in an undergarment. I'm sure Jesus has seen his undergarment before, you know? I mean, they're guys. They've been, they've been living together for three years. That, that's not a big deal. What, what struck me about this is why would it seem important for Peter? I don't know about you, but when I'm getting ready to jump into the water, I, I try to take more clothes off. He puts on his outer... Don't, don't you do that? I mean, you're like, you know, I'm, I'm going to get wet. I don't need to get my shirt wet. I don't need to get everything else wet, right? And I don't know if you do this. I cannot stop the habit of anytime I'm jumping into the water, I reach back in my pocket to see if I have my cell phone still in my pocket. Do you do that? I mean, like in midair, I'm going to be able to do anything about the fact that there's a cell phone there, you know? It's like, oh, maybe I can grab it and throw it in midair. I do it every time. I'm like, I jump in like this. I want to get rid of things when I'm getting ready to get wet. Why would Peter want to add things when he's getting ready to get wet? I think that's what shame does to us. Makes us want to cover up. What happens to Adam and Eve in the garden? They immediately cover up. That's what happens to us when we're shame. We we don't want anybody to see us, so, so we cover up. The second thing that's interesting about this is a fire of burning coals. Fire burning coals. Jesus and Peter have this conversation, and it was their first personal conversation since Peter has disowned and denied Jesus. It's the first one that they've had. And it's so interesting to me because these words, fire of burning coals, are only used one other place in Scripture. I mean, there are lots of other fires. There's lots of other time when there's things going on and there are people around fire. But this exact phrase, fire of burning coals, only one other time is it used. And guess where it is? It's in the high priest's courtyard when Peter is warming himself around a fire of burning coals. What John is trying to tell us is there's a memory trigger here. You, you know what I'm talking about? You know, you're like you, you, uh, you hear a song, you smell a smell, you see a sight, and it's a memory trigger for you. 
I mean, music is, is really great for that. Uh, I got a clip of this this week. Those, those of you who are parents of young children will appreciate this greatly. Amen from your parents. <laughs> if I have to hear that song one more time. I think the fire burning coals, I, I, the reason that the, the phrase is exactly the same in the Greek to me is, hey, pay attention to this. There's a, there's a memory trigger here. And smells are great for that. I went to run at the forest preserve yesterday and they just laid new asphalt down in it. I mean, I spent uh, the summer before I went to college laying asphalt in Oklahoma. It was a horrible job. I mean, 105 degrees outside, I'm in the back of an asphalt truck, but that triggered a mind for me, a, a, a memory mind thing for me immediately. As soon as I smell that smell, I go back to Oklahoma in 1979. I, I, that's what happens, you know? For you, maybe it's a smell of a locker room reminds you of two-a-days in, in August, or a smell of a perfume reminds you of your first date with your wife. A smell of your kid's bathroom reminds you of your last really long car trip. So you can feel the plot start to thicken here, right? Here's Peter, here's Jesus. They haven't been, you know, really in any direct contact until now. And, and Jesus is there cooking breakfast around a fire exactly the same. How many times has Peter wept over the last time he was at a fire like this? And here he is talking to Jesus again. And Jesus looks at Peter and, and what does he say? You may have read this before. He, 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 he turns to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Now let that sink in, okay? It's kind of a bizarre question if you think about it. Peter, do you love me? Or really, that's, that's what I want to know. It could have asked, Peter, do you, did you learn your lesson? Or, or how could you do this to me? Or didn't I tell you so? You would figure Jesus would pull the I told you so card, right, at some point. Peter, can I trust you again? Peter, how could you lead my church? What makes you think that's possible? Peter, you should be ashamed of yourself. Jesus could have said all of those things, but he only asked, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, of course I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. A second time, he says the very same thing. Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Then the third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This time it says Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now think about that question for a minute, will you? Okay. Because it's not a question, it's a statement. Because isn't it true that I don't really care whether you love me or not unless I love you, right? I mean, I didn't write any notes to girls in junior high that said, check this box if you like me, unless I liked them already. That's how it works. In all my life, I've never asked anybody if they loved me if I didn't care that they loved me because I loved them already. This is not a question. This is a statement. He, Jesus is saying to Peter, you know what? I love you. Do you love me? This is, let's just get this out of the way right here. 
And he asks him once, and Peter says yes, and he asks him twice, and Peter says yes, and he asks him the third time, and Peter's like, hey, I already said it. And then at some point around that memory trigger fire, I think it kind of dawned on Peter, as it does for all of us, why Jesus had to do it three times. How many times had Peter denied Jesus? Three times. So Jesus says, I want to fully reinstate you. Tell me three times that you love me. Because you're never going to not need grace. Jesus is saying, even though you messed up, I'm choosing you to lead my organization after I'm gone. What's interesting about this is if you go back and look at the prayer that Jesus prayed before the crucifixion, this was it. I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, in other words, I know you're going to blow it, so when you have blown it and you come back to me again, strengthen and build up your brothers. I mean, even before all this happens, Jesus is saying, look, I, I really want you to take any failure that happens, and I know there's going to be, I know that there's going to be public failure and people are going to be disappointed with you. I want you to take that and I want you to turn it around and make it into motivation. I want you to go feed my sheep. Three times he says it so that, so that Peter gets it. I want you to, I want you to lead, I want you to feed my sheep. You are my guy. So what happens after that? The disciples get gathered around. Jesus goes off to heaven. He says, you guys wait for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And when that happens, things are going to blow up. You better be ready. And it happens. And, and guess who gets up to preach on the very first day in the day of Pentecost? Who do you think it would be? It's epic failure Peter who gets up and he preaches in Acts 2. And he says, hey, here's the deal. You guys killed Jesus and you need to turn back to him. And they said, okay, what do we do? And 3,000 people got baptized that very first day. And then we read the story of Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved and the early disciples and how things just blew up because they were able to take their failures and, and, and their fallenness and they were able to turn it into something that was amazing motivation. Matter of fact, when you get over to Acts chapter 4, I love this passage. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. What happened? They took their epic failure, turned it into motivation. There's not, nothing like coming back from failure to motivate you. Dave Ramsey, if you've been through Financial Peace University, you know the reason he's such a great teacher, the reason he figured out biblical principles on money management is because he failed. <coughs> it's because he failed. He, 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 committed, he had to go to bankruptcy because he, he, he lost his business. Billy Graham's son Franklin was a prodigal and went really far away from God. And, and then he came back and he used that failure to run Samaritan's Purse and, and, and to be a minister of the gospel in an oppressive way. Pastor Lonnie had a cocaine habit. I just keep trying that when I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work it on it, all the rest of the pastors so I look better. Because I'm the, I'm the pastor that Jesus loves. I'm just kidding. Lonnie doesn't have any bad habits. I, I, I dare say, however, that, you know, leading Lonnie as a minister, it's not, it's not a failure of himself. He's leading from a disability. And that's what makes him a great pastor. I dare say that Peter wouldn't have been as effective as a leader in the early church if it hadn't been for the failures that he had gone through. 
And all the disciples took their failures and they used it as motivation. But here's what's so crazy about this. Peter's not done messing up. You are never going to not need grace. Don't forget this, okay? And I I know that a lot of you were taught, you know, that Peter was, you know, like this infallible, perfect person, except when you get over to Galatians, he's got a problem, and Paul has to confront him. He's falling into the trap of legalism, and you got to understand that Simon, Peter, and Cephas were all the same name. They all meant the rock, and Peter was called all three names in Scripture. So you get over to Galatians 2, and it says, when Cephas, the rock, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, James the brother of Jesus, who was like the leader of the Jerusalem church, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Cephas used to eat with the Gentiles, the people that weren't Jews that they were trying to accept into the kingdom of God by this point. But when they arrived, these important Jerusalem officials, Cephas began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. He became a hypocrite. It's a classic older brother story. Some disagreement uh, among scholars as to whether this is Peter or not. It doesn't really matter if it's, if it's Peter or another guy named the rock Cephas that was a leader in the church because evidently everybody is in on this. It says even Barnabas is bought into the legalism thing and it's only Paul who comes back and says, hey, you guys, what, what happened to the gospel? What happened to the gospel being for everybody? What happened to the fact that we don't need to get circumcised anymore and we don't have to follow the Jewish laws anymore because it's about the grace of Jesus? Did you forget this? And this happens in church all the time. It'll happen to you if you're a new Christian. There will come a a, a period of spiritual adolescence in your life where you'll start to get to the point where you think you've actually arrived at some place where you kind of got your life figured out. And, And you think that God is really happy with the way you live your life. And maybe he's happier with the way you live your life than the people around you. And you're gonna start wanting to look down your nose at other people instead of remembering that you are never going to not need grace. You are never going to be perfect. Rebecca Pippert wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker Into the World. She wrote about a great story of this. She said, when I first came to Portland, Oregon, I met a student on one of the campuses where I worked. He was brilliant and he looked like He was always pondering the deep things of the world. His hair was always messy, and the entire time I knew him, I never saw him wear a pair of shoes. Rain, sleet, snow, Bill was always barefoot. While he was attending college, he had become a Christian. At at this time, a well-dressed middle-class church across the street from campus wanted to develop a ministry to the students. They were not sure how to go about it, but they tried to make them feel welcome. One day, Bill decided to worship there. He walked into church wearing his blue jeans, t-shirt, and of course, no shoes. People looked a bit uncomfortable, but no one said anything. So Bill began walking down the aisle looking for a seat. The church was quite crowded that Sunday. So just as he got down to the front pew and realized there were no seats, he just squatted down on the carpet right down front. Perfectly acceptable behavior for a college fellowship, but perhaps a bit unnerving for a church congregation. The tension in the air became so thick you could slice it. Suddenly, an elderly man began walking down the aisle towards the boy. Was he going to scold Bill? My friends who saw him approaching said they thought, well, you can't blame him. He'd never guessed Bill was a Christian, and his world is too distant from Bill's to understand. You can't blame him for what he's going to do. 
And as the man kept walking slowly down the aisle, the church became utterly silent. All eyes were focused on him. You could not hear anyone breathe. But when the man reached Bill with some difficulty, he lowered himself down, sat next to him on the carpet, and worshiped. He and Bill worshiped together on the floor that Sunday. I was told there was not a dry eye in the congregation. We will never, ever not need grace. So pull up some carpet and join us. My point here is that the idea of a perfect, infallible human being on this earth is ludicrous. I'm not one. I never will be one. You're not one. You're never going to be one. Nobody except for Jesus who ever lived on this earth was infallible and a perfect person. We all screw up. We're all disappointed by pastors that screw up. None more than me. And we're so impressed by people like a Rick Warren or a Bill Hybels or a, a Billy Graham or a Mother Teresa or a Pope who has lived their life with integrity all the way up until the end. And by the grace of God, that will be me. Well, grace of God and the fear of Denise, but regardless, <laughs> that will be me, but, but not perfect. I'm ridiculously imperfect. And I am never going to not need grace. And when you can lead from there, when you can love from there and serve from there and be like Jesus from there, then God can really use you. Listen to Mother Teresa. I don't think there is anyone who needs God's help and grace as much as I do. <laughs> Seriously. Sometimes I feel so helpless and weak. I think that is why God uses me. When you realize that grace is everything and that you will never, ever, ever, ever not need grace, that's when God will really use you. There are two groups of people, I've been thinking this week, two groups of people that motivate me to do ministry more than anybody else. Probably most of you fit in this category, so maybe this will make sense. Two, two groups of people that, that the reason Parkview exists, the reason I do what I do, are the people who are feeling the shame, feeling like you need to cover up, you're feeling like you're really afraid of what God's going to say to you because you have screwed up. And I hope you hear what we're saying. Jesus just, just turns to you and says, do you love me? Because I love you. The other group is um, those of you who have been the Gentiles in the Galatians scenario. You've been the people that that the church has, has looked down on. The church has looked at and said, well, you're, you're not good enough. Well, you need to do things our way before you can have a relationship with Jesus. We will never do that. Ever. You come as you are. I'll come as I am. And we will love. We will be with each other. We will learn to grow in grace and mercy together. This table, the Lord's table that he set before us, the bread and the juice, the body and the blood, it's not our table. That's why I say every week, you don't have to be from Parkview. This is the Lord's table. 
It's between you and him. We're all on this journey together. We want to help you. But we invite you to join us at the table right now. Let's pray. Lord, for those of us, all of us in this room who realize we've blown it and we're never going to not need grace, it may have been a bad week. There may have been a, a look. There may have been a fire burning coals. There may, there may have been a pretty graphic reminder. It may have been on television for all to see. Or, or it may just be something inside of us right now that we're looking back on our week and we're thinking, oh, Jesus, you've got to be so disappointed in me. I need to cover up. Will you, will you let those people hear, do you love me? Then go out and take my love and your failure and mix them together into motivation to do the work of ministry. For those people who are here who've been hurt, <clears throat> they've been hurt by judgmental, legalistic Christians, by a, by a, a narrow-minded, log-in-their-eye kind of a church that's looked down on them and told them that they weren't good enough for your love. Will you help them to know that those people don't represent you? And if Paul was here, he would confront them to their face, even if they were Cephas, even if they were the leaders of the church, Paul would say, no, the gospel's for everybody. And Lord, if there are people in this room who need our help, please let them know that we love them. There is no judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.